Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. We are in week three of a series, Reconstructing Faith. We're taking a compassionate look at those who uh, have deconstructed or de- are in, the pro- in that process. And again, it's, it's, it, there's lots of degrees. It's, for some, it means that they have left the church, left Jesus. But some, it just may, you know, you may be here and you're just like, well, I haven't left the church. But I've, I've, I've taken kind of a st- step back and I kind of have this uh, distant view of what's going on. There's something that's, and, and we want to help each other pick up the pieces. So week one, we looked at the issue of a church hurt and how do we heal um, my 18th anniversary as a pastor of this church is the first week of March, and I just had no idea of the amount of stories I would hear over the years of, of church hurt and what people have experienced, and it's heartbreaking. And if you've experienced that, we would love to walk alongside you in prayer and, and weep with you and encourage you and, and help you on that path to healing. Week two, we looked at the reliability. Last week, we looked at the reliability of scriptures. We're going to make progress here. We need to know, are the scriptures historically, culturally, personally reliable? And then this week, we're going to try to make sense of the biblical vision for sexuality. And I don't just want us to have clarity around this, but I, I, I want us to, to see the beauty in it and the possibilities that it offers to hopefully inspire us to, to run toward it and not run away from it or at least just wish it was something different. A little silence there. Maybe that's true. Um, I'm reminded, I, when my kids, we love to camp, and, and one of the first things that we do when we camp is we, uh, I, I build a fire. And the kids play a, a role in that. They may go get little sticks or kindling or whatever, and we get the fire going. I get the fire going. And uh, I know my, my youngest... Uh, Josie, sorry, I'm pointing. Is she here? No, she's not here. Oh, she's right there. Sorry, I'm pointing out. She likes to grab one of the sticks out of the fire, and she runs. <laughs> running through the forest, even though Smokey Bear said never to do that, she does it anyway. And we're like, Josie, no, 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 you can't run around with the fire through the forest like that. She's like, what, why not? He's like, Daddy, didn't you make the fire? Isn't this what you did? And I'm, I said, yeah, the fire is, is awesome. It's going to like, we're going to roast marshmallows. We're going to cook our meal. We're going to sit by. It's going to be warm and peaceful to look at. The fire is awesome when it's like right here, like in the, that metal thing. Um, fire's not awesome running around wherever. And when the Bible talks about sex, it, it doesn't put a, uh, a, the prohibition on it that, that some may think as if it's bad in and of itself. The, the, it's awesome, but it has the power to be very destructive if it's not in the right place. And, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, the Bible is, is anything but uh, restrictive. In fact, if you go read the book, go read the chapter, Song of Solomon 4. Uh, I'm not going to read that here, just don't have the time for it. But secondly, this is only PG-12. 
and I need to respect those ages, and it goes a little bit beyond that. But I just want to give a tip for the husbands, if you've not figured out Valentine's Day yet. Um, you're, the way you're looking at me makes me nervous, like you forgot that it was Valentine's Day. Anyway, if, uh, Valentine's Day, if you don't have that figured out yet, you get a card, and you can just copy-paste Solomon 4. And if you do that, things will go well for you. And so, but this is what Song of Solomon does. And I don't know why we celebrate the day that a saint got his head cut off with chocolate and flowers, but we do. But so she responds after all this language about, he describes her from head to toe. Um, And it's beautifully written. And her response to this approach of his let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. She says, yes. And he, you know, next verse, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then the affirmation of friends, which really is the inspiration of God. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. The Bible is talking about sex in a marriage to be drink deeply of it, to be intoxicated by that. And there's communication and there's deep friendship. Did you notice uh, the word my sister? I said this in the first service and some kid said my sister. And I was like, you're not supposed to be in here, brother. Anyway, see, um, But it was such, it wasn't, she wasn't his actual sister, but there was such a bond of of friendship, this familial, this, this, we're family, this strong bond of friendship. There was already a strong foundation of friendship love before it became sexual. But the Bible does say things like in Proverbs 5, drink water from your own cistern. This is a father to a son using metaphorical language, encouraging him to enjoy the wife of his youth, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the street? He goes on to say, no, that's not where this belongs. And Jesus says this, and this is our text in Matthew 5. He said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. That's the boundary that the Bible puts on there. Uh, sex outside of a covenant between a man and a woman for one life. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he swims upstream a little bit and he's more concerned with what's right and what's wrong. One of the questions that a disciple has to ask is not just, hey, is this, is this right or wrong? I get questions. Can I date this person? Should I do this? Can we do that? Can we? Th- those are I understand why those questions get asked, but a disciple of Jesus asks a deeper question. Not so much, can I do this, can I not do this, but who am I becoming if I participate in this? So Jesus swims upstream. Where'd I go? He swims upstream and talks about if, you're, if, if you even look at a woman lustfully, there's something that's going on in you. You're, you're becoming a person that I've not designed you to be, and I want to take... A look at this. So that's one. So this is this is in broad, very broad strokes. And if you stick around Jubilee long, we probably talk about this topic once or twice a year. Um, the youth in our church, the high school youth, are going through uh, what is the biblical view of sexuality, and it's fantastic. And 
I'm glad they're doing that. But out of this 1960s, the little history here, came a sexual revolution that wanted to push back the barriers of, of traditional values, traditional Christian values, you could say. And the sexual revolution was defined by Mary Eberstadt in her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, The Paradox of the Sexual Revolution. She says, the sexual revolution was the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes, so as long as those involved are consenting adults. So that's, it's how we want to push back these barriers. We think um, sexual activity is the apex of joy and fulfillment, and it should not be limited just to people who are married and it's expanded from there. And if a revolution is defined by an overthrow of what was, I mean, that's what the definition of a revolution is, by that standard, the sexual revolution was very, very successful. The Jesus revolution, the Jesus movement, if you will, happened at about the same time. And according to the effect on society, in many ways, the Jesus revolution of the 60s and 70s was overthrown by the sexual revolution. If you were to look at the statistics regarding pornography, premarital sex, abortion, divorce, living together before marriage, all the things that the sexual revolution wanted, self-proclaiming Christians, and I'll use that in quotes, self-proclaiming Christians and non-Christians live very similar lives. Now, most Christians do not do this with kind of a haphazard attitude. They do it with a deep sense of struggle and shame and guilt but they do it. So when you're talking about these issues, there's really two extreme overreactions that I want to talk about. One is fear. Uh, there's, a, there's a response of fear, overreaction of many Christians that have taken the issue, have taken to the issue of sex, that sex is bad, it should be avoided. And there's that side of the issue. That's one side of the continuum is fear. And this is not just true since the 1960s, but actually this is all throughout church history because of, well, I mean, sex being really enjoyable, but also having this disastrous effects. And so the only thought is like, we have to get rid of it. And, and actually even some non-Christian people have proposed the same thing. No one probably demonstrated this more tangibly than the, uh, the fifth century scholar, Jerome, who did a lot of work. He spent three decades of his life um, translating the Bible into Latin, which was the standard text for more than a thousand years, very influential person, but he had a lust issue. He, uh, he said, I was plagued. This is a quote from him. I was plagued with sexual fantasies. I often found myself surrounded by bands of dancing girls. And so I fasted to the point of starving in attempt to control the temptations. He even would throw his naked body into thorn bushes to like, you know, it's like, whoa, like, cold shower or something. I don't know. But he, so, but he put in all these rules. So he said, he even said, he went so far as to say that too passionate of love, uh, of sex between married people is considered adultery. He taught that. In fact, he declared that uh, forbid, forbidden sex on Thursdays, which is the day of Jesus' arrest, on Friday, the day of his death, on Saturday, in honor of the Blessed Virgin, on Sunday, in honor of his resurrection, and on some Wednesdays, and on during the, four, the three 40-day fast periods before Christmas, 
before Easter, and before Pentecost. There were 44 days of God-blessed sex in marriage, and this was his rule. And so you could define the formula as this, merit, or excuse me, moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. And that's actually probably what most people think about when they think about the biblical sexual ethic. It's about a moral standard, it's about a lot of willpower, and then you're a holy person. And that's what is in the church. Except that doesn't work, and it hasn't worked. And that's what the stats show. Even people in the church have a difficult time with that mindset. So you might say the formula looks more like this. Moral standards plus willpower equals failure. And that's what it's produced. It's produced guilt, shame. And so on one side, you have this fear. By the way, in, in all of what I'm going, I have said, I'm going to say, my, my goal here is not uh, to shame anyone. I, I realize that this is a, a sensitive topic for a lot of people, and a lot of people have been hurt, and there's abuse, and there's all kinds of things that go into this, and it, and it ends up being something that becomes difficult to talk about because of our past and our history and what we've experienced. And, but I do want to put these out because it has caused people uh, to leave. And I just want to make sure uh, that uh, anyone who would reject Christianity would reject what, A, the Bible actually says, but also to take an honest look at what's happened. So on one side, you have, um, you have fear. On the other side of the continuum, you have freedom. There's a term called sex positivity. It's a coined by William Reich, but it was elaborated on by sexologist Carol Queen. It's a simple yet radical affirmation that we grow our own passions on a different medium. That instead of having two or three or even a half dozen sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positive respects, sex positive respects our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference and possibility. And so they, on this side, it's just like, you know, sexual libertarians, it's all about freedom, and as long as there's consent. It, it, it works, and sex is, you know, why is there forbidding on any of this? It's just an appetite. You know, you're thirsty, you drink. You're hungry, you eat. If you're feeling aroused, you go have sex with someone. It doesn't matter who. It just matters if it fulfills that desire. That is that side of it. And so you might say the formula looks like this. Desire plus content equals freedom. That is the, that is the theory. That's a theory behind the sexual revolution. Desire plus consent equals freedom. But you look around and you have to ask the question, just like, is fear working? No. Is this, is this working? Well, it's landing on our society in more ways than I can elaborate in the short time that we have today. But if you stick around, there's more in the future. And if you're interested, you can go back and look at the past what we've talked about. But this lands really on our young people, the next generation. The largest users of pornography, for example, are between the ages of 12 and 17. And I mean, uh, porn producers increasingly target adolescents. 87% of teenagers admitted that watching porn caused them to think less of the opposite sex. 
So it's having a demeaning effect on how men and women see each other. Pope uh, John Paul II said this, there is no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but it shows far too little. Um, the number one word associated with pornography is teen. It's the first generation, generation now, so who knows where this will go. The first generation of young people to be raised marinating their brain in pornography. Which I could say, I won't say, but I could say a lot more here, but, but to summarize and say that it's entirely misogynistic. Increasingly violent. It produces high level of dopamine to the reward center, making it highly addictive. And if you know about uh, dopamine and the reward center, the reward center of your brain does not discern this, if this does not make moral judgments. It just says, I like this. And it, it is connecting two things it's connecting, um, it's, it's putting together. Uh, dopamine with violence and misogyny. And one researcher pointed out that it's literally rewiring our brains that what fires together, those two things, reward and violence, what fires together, wires together. Meaning sex and violence is being woven into the minds of our young people. Last year when I uh, said the stat I'm getting ready to say, so the average age of the of a sexual offender, of a sexual offender's first um, offense, last year it was 15. This year it's 14. Mary Eberstadt said this: First, and contrary to the conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women. And second, its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in society even as it's given extra strength to those already strongest and most predatory. Uh, one of the things, one of the commercials you will probably see today um, watching the Super Bowl is a commercial on um, ED. Men love football, and men have increasingly are affected by ED. As recently as 2002, the number of men affected under 40 was one in 50. It was primarily considered you know, something that happened in your 80s. Today, it's one in four. Who knows what it will be in the next generation? Of all the unhealthy lifestyles that's connected with ED, smoking, obesity, substance abuse, those things have not proportionally increased. In fact, many of them have actually decreased, thankfully. The one thing that has skyrocketed, though, is pornography use. Uh, it's led to uh, a commodification of, uh, between men and women and, and between all of us together in terms of how we view love. And so things like cohabitation are increasing, which destroys the family, which destroys kids again. So they doubly lose out. I mean, one of the most statistically helpful things that, the, the most statistically um, privileged thing that a, a child could have is two parents in the home. 
more than any other factor to parents in the home. It's not producing what we thought. It's not producing freedom and fulfillment. It's producing loneliness. United Kingdom, Britain, they have a minister of loneliness. And one of their cabinets, like one of the things that they have in the government is someone to deal with the problem of loneliness. It's considered in the United States an epidemic, an epidemic that is on par and even exceeds the damaging effects of obesity and smoking. And the public officials say this is worthy of a public health intervention. We just don't know what to do. Jonathan Grant said this. He says, if intimate relationships were mortgages, we might call these subprime commitments. Speaking of... They are high-risk projects with literal no collateral security. Unfortunately, just like subprime mortgages, they are relationships designed to fail. And so... The Bible talks about that marriage and, and sex is, is a covenantal good that is within the zone of safety that our heart wants. And then the sexual revolution has produced, has made it a consumer good. A, a consumer good is fueled by performance regardless of a promise. The covenantal good is fueled by the promise regardless of performance. Meaning like our heart gets that zone of safety that we finally want and actually that, that sex points to. A professor at Dartmouth did a study just a few years back um, to discover what, they asked this question, they did research on this question, what is the, what is the number of sexual partners needed to maximize ha happiness? You know what the answer was? One. The number of sexual partners that will maximize your happiness over the course of your life is one. And this is particularly true among women. So you might say that desire plus consent equals disillusionment. One pastor said this, when you get rid of the creator, talking about purpose design and why this all exists, when you get rid of the creator, you get rid of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of accountability. When you get rid of accountability, you get rid of the need to answer for your choices. When you get rid of people giving account for their life, you remove the fear of God. And it's the fear of God that's the beginning of wisdom. When you when you have no fear of God and no wisdom, all you're left with is total confusion. It is the logic of Romans 1, for those who are familiar with that passage, and it is our cultural moment. Jesus enters into the middle of a fear-based response and a freedom-based response to human sexuality when he says, you've heard it said that divorce is out of bounds, I want to talk not about what you do right and wrong. I want to talk about who you are becoming and how you see other people. Do you see them as objects for your pleasure, commodities to be had? Or do you, do you, do you want to come with me and discover the kind of love that you're meant to have? You see, we have what's called a disordered love. A disordered love. C.S. Lewis talks about these four loves. He puts them, and this is how it, it goes in our culture. The highest form of love is eros, er, er, you know, erotic sexual love. Uh, the, next, the next is storge. This is like um, uh, fun and nostalgia. Philia is friendship. Agape is sacrificial. Uh, 
So the way that we are being formed by this view of sexuality that we see popularized in our culture today is if you're attractive sexually and you're fun to be around, maybe I should get to know you. And if I get to know you, maybe we would form a friendship. And if we form a friendship, maybe I'll sacrifice for you. And part of what makes the the biblical sexual ethic, which is going to say no to that, as I mean, probably no one walked in here and (laughs) assumed something different. One of the things that makes it so hard for those outside the church, but let's be honest, those of us inside the church, is that we we feel like we are excluding people or other people feel like we are excluding people from the greatest thing in the world. You're excluding people from sexual love. That is so harsh. And we propagate that in the church sometimes. Like the whole big idea is to get married and to have kids and, and th- that's, like, that's like the mountain we're all trying to climb. And if we can get to that mountain, then we're there. And then we just live the rest of our lives doing who knows what. But is that the highest form of love? Well, what did Jesus say? He said this. He told us. He was so helpful. <laughs> Greater love than no one than this than someone who has sex with his friends. Than someone who lays down his life for his friends. The ultimate expression of love is not sexual. It's sacrificial. And those people outside the church who don't want to commodify people live by a sexual ethic that commodifies people. Those of us inside the church sometimes propagate a witness of love that is actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible blesses marriage. It blesses singleness. It blesses, it says it's, it's good to find a wife. It says, you know, blesses a man who, who fills his quiver with children. Yes and amen. It's just not the apex of joy, fulfillment, or even love. It's husbands, agape your wives. It's sacrifice. And we see examples of this and, we, and we're inspired by them. It was a couple years ago, Dick Hoyt, he died, but he was a guy, you probably know who he is when I describe him. He was a guy who ran the, all those marathons with his paraplegic son, pushed his son in a wheelchair in 68 marathons, gave up time, gave up money, gave up aspirations to be a world-class athlete. In fact, he got within 30 minutes of the world record by pushing his, while pushing his adult son in a wheelchair. That's pretty impressive. We are so inspired by that. That love is not, of course, sexual. It's sacrificial. And so the Bible is going to tell us that the nature of our love for each other 
is to be agapes, foundational in the church. What we communicate by loving each other to the world is that agape love is the best love. It's the love that he has poured out on our hearts. And because he's poured out on our hearts, I'm pouring it out on all my brothers and sisters. And it doesn't end there. Because he also said, you've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. So we are those who put on display being formed by Jesus in his view of everything, including sex, formed into making the ultimate love a self-sacrificial agape love. Ernest Becker said this, we are the first society who has a widespread belief that there is not an ultimate future that when you die, you go to extinction and a personal consciousness is temporary. Therefore, there has never been a society that has believed so firmly in the insignificance of human life. However, we secular people still need to know that our lives matter in the grand scheme of things. We still want to merge ourselves in some higher meaning. But if we no longer have God, how do we do this? As a result, there has never been a society who has put such an emphasis on finding your one true love in and outside of the church. It's hard to live this way. It's harder for some than it is others. But there's such reward. Here, check out this promise that God says. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It doesn't say, blessed are you who stay pure, because one day you'll be sexually fulfilled and all your dreams will come true. It says something better than that. It says you'll see God. Where do you get the strength? The joy of the Lord is our strength. We put on display to the world, feasting on something that's much greater. Our message isn't that you, you need to stop being bad people. Our message is we found something much, much better. We have found the grace and mercy of Jesus and his love has been poured out in our hearts and we can see him. We can see him. Neurobiologists have, sh I've said some bad stuff about your brain and pornography. Neurobiologists have shown that while most brain development stops sometime in childhood, your brain's joy center located in the, orb in the right orbital prefrontal cortex is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is righteousness, right standing with God, peace. I'm just at peace with the world and joy. And it's something in your brain that, it's the only part of your brain that doesn't disintegrate, but it actually increases. That's amazing. The psalmist declares, you make known to me the path of life. That's what God does. He wants to bring you into life. Follow me, I'll bring you into abundant life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. So Christians, what witness are we giving to the world? We've got the right rules. We've got it all figured out. Or that we have, we have found a person 
who, has, who knows us and loves us anyway, who's expressed the mercy and grace to us and has filled our life with joy. Because here's one thing I know about uh, sexuality. In the, if, the, if the stats are even remotely true, there's a lot of failures in this room. There's failures outside, there's failures in this room. And maybe as, as recent as last night. And the guilt and the judgment, and that is not the message of Jesus either. Jesus finds this woman. She's a Samaritan woman. Uh, she was a woman that was even rejected by her own people. She had five husbands, and the, one, the man that she was with, she was living with, was not her husband. And Jesus, in so many words, says, how's that working out for you? It's not working out too well, is it? You keep drinking from broken cisterns. You keep drinking from this well, and you keep being thirsty. But I say, if you drink the water that I have, living water, you will never thirst again. You will be fulfilled. And she says, well, give me this water then. And he does. And with joy, she goes back to her entire town. Check out what she says in John 4, 29. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, when is that good news? Except when you get healed in the most broken part of your life. Don't hide your brokenness from Jesus. He knows it all anyway. Expose your brokenness to Jesus and drink from living water and be filled with joy and put that on display as a witness to the world there's just something better, and his name is Jesus. Would you stand with me, please? Jesus, we, we have fallen short in so many ways. But God, we see in, in the Bible that, that in, in, your, in your life that, that in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our, the condemnation that comes from our sin, God, those seem like they won't separate, but your mercy has put a wedge. Your death on the cross has created space between our sin and the condemnation that comes from our sin. And you created a space for mercy, which is new every morning, New every morning, tomorrow will be brand new, Tuesday, brand new. And you offer healing, living water. May we be a community that, that can declare, not just with our minds, but with our hearts, that you have shown us the path of life, that you have shown us pleasures evermore. <laughs>